proof that this is the hey hey and hi 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 welcome to i know i know a solo beatles video cast where we talk all things solo beatles today we have a very special guest two very special guests i could say we have the former wings drummer who played on three wings out two wings albums and he played on red rose speedway wildlife and this um, classic album that nobody's ever heard of called Ram. <laughs> yes, inconsequential. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Denny Sywell. Denny, welcome to Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. This is a big day for Fernando and I. Uh, Ram on forever. Yeah. Yeah. Ram on. <laughs> Oh, that's a nice yellow one. Yeah. This came from the box set last year. Oh, oh nice. So, Denny, first of all, what is your favorite Beatles album? Well, I I, I think uh, I have a tie as well, but I think I'm going to go with that uh, Abbey Road. Because I remember I was on tour in Japan with Astro Gilberto when it came out and I bought the Japanese version of the CD and a little briefcase stereo. And I damn near wore that album out and I still have that cassette and it still works. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Fernando, who's co-producing the Ram on 50th anniversary. It's um, um, a tie between Sergeant Pepper and Abbey Road. Um, uh, Abbey Road is so special to all of us. And I feel like it's a template for um, a lot of different genres of rock and roll. Sgt. Pepper is super special to me, though, because my high school had a rock ensemble, and we performed Sgt. Pepper cover to cover as a concert when I was 16 years old. I was a junior in high school. And uh, in many ways, that, that trained me to what we are doing now, which is taking an album like Ram um, and creating a new version with a new generation of people. So. The power of music in schools, which needs to never go away. So support music in schools. Absolutely. And um, what is your favorite Paul McCartney solo record, including Wings? Ram. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. I think the question would be, what's our favorite solo album that McCartney did aside from Ram? Because Ram is, is, is yeah. unanimously considered yeah. the pinnacle. Yeah. You know, the, the, the moment. What is your favorite McCartney record besides Ram then? Well, I mean, uh, I liked uh, McCartney the, with the one with junk on it. I, I really thought that that was great. Actually, here's a little tidbit. When I met Paul and he was auditioning drummers for Ram, uh, I just went into my, I was impersonating him <laughs> and Ringo. I just checked <laughs> the two of them and played what I thought he would like to hear. Interesting. It worked. <laughs> I got the wow. gig. <laughs> yeah, and you've done well. It all started with the Beatles with me. And then when I uh, discovered McCartney's Wings era, it almost kind of eclipsed it to the point where uh, it was all I was listening to. So uh, I'm obsessed with Rainbow Speedway. I'm obsessed with Tug of War. I'm obsessed with the McCartney album because as a person, as a multi-instrumentalist, that album was a life changer because I, I didn't realize that Maybe I'm Amazed, which is my favorite song of all time. It's all Paul, it's Paul, Paul, and Linda. 
It so is. it's really cool to get introduced to the world of overdubbing and, you know, buying a four track, asking for a four track for Christmas and, you know, learning how to play all the stuff. But, uh, but that's the cool thing about Paul is that there's four decades of material there to discover. And I feel like every decade has its, its masterpiece and, you know, tug of war, flowers in the dirt, uh, memory almost full, chaos and creation. There's so many great albums, but Ram is, is the pinnacle to me. And it's an album that, that many people consider, you know, one of the top 10 greatest albums of rock and roll to me. It's the greatest album of the 70s in my eyes. And number two of the greatest albums of all time. It's one of, it's like tied neck and neck with a Beatles album. Could go either way. What's me. really cool about that record is that there's really only four, four main musicians on the record. Paul, Linda, she's five. Paul, Linda, Denny, Dave Spinoza, and McCracken that made the core band and then the orchestra. And, but, uh, you know, so a big part of it was Denny. And one of the things while we were making this record, I kept on asking was, did Paul tell you what to play? And I was actually very happy and very surprised when he told me that Paul put him in charge of the drum department. So all those oh, wow. beats is a Denny Sywell creation. But one song uh, we were doing Uncle Albert and I was just kind of playing a normal beat for Uncle Albert. And he stopped and he said, can you find something that's a little unnormal, abnormal? <laughs> and, you know, said something that just goes along, has more space in it and goes along with the vocal. So I went, mm, oh, okay, boom, put it over the chin. And uh, by that, and he said, wow, that's great. That's the only time he's, he asked me to play something uh, a different way. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it was great fun. Every day we'd hear the song, we'd say, I'll never forget the first day he came in and we recorded another day, the first track. And Spinoza and I, you know, Paul's playing the song, it's just another, and it went to three from four. And I look over at Dave and he looks at me and we both said, holy, <laughs> that was unheard of. That just didn't happen in our lives as New York studio musicians. We're really going to be asked to make music. So yeah. it has to be good. So uh, we knew it was going to be a challenge and a beautiful challenge. So, um, like, going back to the RAM sessions, was that like, how how was Paul during the sessions? Because he was kind of still on the back burner of the Beatles breakup. Yeah, well, he, was, he had an attitude of, uh, I'm a musician, I'm a songwriter, I can't stay on my farm in Scotland. Linda took <laughs> my ass, I'm here, we're going to make stuff. And That's the good attitude. He just had that attitude. We're making stuff. He had a lot of all this music was in him. Hardly any of it was written there in New York. It was all done up the farm. He had sketches of the songs. And he, you know, with the British musicians and the American musicians at the time, the grass is always greener. So they thought, you know, British people thought New York musicians were the tops, and we, we thought English musicians were the tops. And he came here trying to find something different. And actually, do you know that track, Wrote All Night? I believe I do. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead here, but uh, Wrote All Night just to happen. We, we recorded 23 songs, I think, for Ram. And one day, he came back after lunch, and the engineers had packed up and everything. I think it was a Friday. They were just getting ready for a weekend. So they were 
tearing stuff down. And we he came back wanting to jam and he threw on his guitar and we started ding, 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 ding. you know, and he started slamming and I started slamming. We start playing. And we look at the engineers and they're frantically trying to set up the microphones and stuff. So we were playing for five, ten minutes and uh, we we stopped to take a breath. And uh and the engineers said, and these are guys in suits and ties, you know. They said, okay, Paul, we're ready now. And we're, oh, no. So he said, okay, here we go. Take two. And we just slammed on take two. And it was uh, it was beautiful. And that came out in the later version of uh, the bonus tracks on Ram. But, uh, you know, when he was doing that, he started making up lyrics. And as he's singing, I wrote all night, I wrote all night, I wrote all night till I finally hit the daybreak for me. He tells me that I'm full of garbage, but he said, for me, that meant I've wrote all night. It means I've, I've finally found some people that I can make music with other than the Beatles. That's what it meant to me, and, and I took it as very special. And, uh, and that, that track, I thought I had the only copy of that. The engineer slipped me a cassette of it. <laughs> and years later, some fans sent me the, a proper CD of it. <laughs> Oh yeah. wow! Incredible drum performance too. I mean, I yeah. can't believe your it foot. Is. I mean, it's it's double bass drum craziness. It's amazing. <laughs> With one bass drum, <laughs> double double hits. And, yeah, one pedal. And also, maybe you know, that's also might be the the precursor of the whole guitar and drums duo thing. Black keys, white stripes. You know, uh, uh, revenettes. You know, yeah. it's just yeah. drums and bass, drums and drums and guitar and vocal, and it's so powerful. Amazing. There was so much fun. I've done I've probably a couple hundred records in my career, but Ram, especially that recording experience, was far better than any of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that so, was the first record Paul ever made in the States, which is really yeah. amazing because, you know. I mean, and you, you know what else is weird about it? I never heard Paul play bass. <laughs> really? He played guitar or piano, you know, acoustic or electric. And sang the song to us on a pilot vocal mic, and either played piano or, or guitar, and it was just either Spinoza or or Hugh McCracken on the other the other guitar, and me on drums. So I'm making up drum parts without hearing the bass, and he he made up his bass parts off of my drum parts. He told me that you know, and I never heard him play bass on those sessions. When it's all over, I get a box at my the doorman brings my things. Come on downstairs. You got a, you have a package here with some records or something. And I, I go down and there's a box of, of the Ram album. I put it on. It's the first time I heard the bass part, the full album. Oh and wow! And I just sat there in, in amazement. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Talk about uh, being part of a, a moment in history that that has affected so many people. I mean, too many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or yeah. The, the platinum version. Amazing. <laughs> and a hit record right off the bat with him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, like, when, because the album was unfortunately, and I don't know how it was, a critical failure. Like, they compared it to Bob Dylan's self portrait. Mm. Which I love Bob, but that's not that great of an album. Um, how many think. records in the history of rock and roll have been panned by Rolling Stone that have been so influential? I mean, did, did Led Zeppelin ever have a critical success? Did Yes ever have a critical success? 
Correct. Just, you know, critics are just that, critics. Bottom line is, do we like it? You know. We, we have a question from a viewer, Oliver. Um, what is your favorite track on Ram for both of you? Mm. I think mine is Backseat of My Car. Simply because there's an iconic drum fill at the end of it that the, uh, the and I and it's just required a little bit more musicianship than some of the other stuff. But uh, I, I always love that track big time. And we have another quick I'm question. Gonna answer that question the same way I answered the Beatles thing. My favorite song on that record now is "Backseat of My Car" uh, for forever. But I will never forget the first time I heard Ram when I was eight years old, and I. Put that needle down on an old record I bought at a flea market, and too many people coming on and blowing my head apart because I was learning how to play guitar, and I was just like, "This is the coolest song ever." And so there's, there, you'll never forget that first time. And obviously, the first track is very important. But backseat of my car is a lot of people yeah. say Beatles quality. You know, yeah. it's it an incredible song. And um. This is another quick question. What were the artists that inspired you guys to make um, musician like um, to go into the music business to play drums and for you, Denny and multi and multi instrumental? Well, you, this is to surprise you, but I wasn't uh, I wasn't a rock and roller. I was really a jazz guy. So, so uh, my influences came from. Uh, Jazz drummers like Mel Lewis and Elvin Jones and John Coltrane and and uh, you know Bill Evans and Keith Jarrett. Just it was a, a, the jazz world. And when I was in the uh, in the Navy band, I started getting into pop a little bit, or um, not not even so much pop, but uh, rock and roll. And the things that that I liked about it were the uh, you know the, the MGs, Bucatini MGs. Any of the groove stuff, all of the, the groove stuff, the R&B stuff, uh, caught my attention more than anything. And when I became a session guy in New York, uh, I got to work with a lot of those. I worked with James Brown. Uh, I did a, a Motown, like a R&B record called A Little Bit of Soap. Now we'll wash away those tears. You know, and we were doing records up the Brill Building every day. We were doing a lot of that stuff, so I'm glad that I had that early introduction to that kind of music, which fed right into rock and roll. I mean, one of the first rock and roll records I made was John Denver, a record called A Little Bit of Take Me to Tomorrow. Oh, wow. But my first recording in, in 67 or 8 in New York was J.J. Johnson and Kai Winding, the two trombone players. We made like a jazz record that had some crossover stuff into into early pop. And it's still a popular record today, and that's 50 plus years ago. Oh, wow. Long answer, but. My answer's boring. <laughs> I'm standing right next to the to one of the people that, that influenced me on position because my mom played piano, uh, but she was a journalist. My brother dabbled a little bit in guitar, but he was a, a computer genius. But uh, a Beatles tape, when I was uh, six years old that I found in my mom's stash that led to a huge Beatles obsession. But I also, my mom used to play a lot of jazz and uh, Michelle Legrand was her favorite artist, a French artist who worked with Marlon Stam. So again, it's all full circle. Yeah. But I'm sitting next to 
um, the heartbeat of a lot of the recordings that I was listening to when I was eight years old. And I really was learning how to play and saying, I want to do this. So it's really amazing to be collaborating in this manner with, uh, with Denny uh, co-producing records. I mean, co-producing the first version of Ram he's done since the first one. So, But now I'm going to go off script a little bit and talk about this guy, too. Okay. He made it so easy <laughs> for me to – I went up to his studio one day on a whim. He said, hey, would you come up and just put some drones on too many people and some people will ne may never know. It's a year or two ago. And I said, yeah, what the hell? I don't mind. He says, I got drums here and everything. I'll just go up and it'd be fun to revisit those songs because I used to perform these songs in my clinic when I do a drum clinic. So I've done it quite a few times at Beatle Fests and other clinic venues. But anyway, I go up to Fernando's. I walk into his studio. I can see that he's got everything you need there. He's got a beautiful old set of slingling in there. I sit down behind the kid. I throw some of my cymbals up. I brought my dad's snare drum This along. is awesome. This is the snare clip, the original snare drum that I used on oh, Ram. Wow. It's uh, it's seven, seven and three eighths inch deep. It's a, a leading Broadway. It's a really a beautiful old drum. So I put it up, and we he put the track on, and before you know it, he played all of the parts, and some some another friend of his put a few parts on, but it was the complete record minus drums. I just put the drums on. Ten minutes later, we had two tracks done. That was the beginning. So when he said, let's do the whole Ram album, I remember how easy it was and how much gratification it gave me and how much fun. So I said, yeah, let's do it. So bang, we, we sat to it. And uh, I mean, one day I think I recorded eight drum tracks in three hours. Well, because of COVID, we, we needed to keep uh, the yeah. sessions down and the exposure down. So we, uh, we did it in his drums in, in two sessions. And uh, I mean, look, he, he's got the stamina of a 25-year-old, you know. <laughs> he just was able to do it, not even break a sweat. But luckily, it wasn't too hot that day, so yeah. it was all good. But um, yeah, basically, you know, it was a, a whim two years ago. I was in a band called Open Sound, and we were doing some covers. And uh, we had, you know, the, my partner had said, "Hey, we should do too many people." And I was like, "Hey, well, let's let's get them over for two songs." And I had suggested some people never know, which is my favorite song in Wildlife. And it went so well that we. It was just an easy process, and it was a lot of fun. And again, I was pinching myself then. I'm really pinching myself now because of doing this entire project, which um, I had originally suggested putting together a RAM band and doing a show. But because of COVID, obviously shows ceased to exist. So it turned into an album, which in many ways is more gratifying because this record is going to be enjoyed by generations. And... We just wanted to make a, a really cool new version of the record that will stand next to the original as a co you know companion piece. And originally, Denny was the the sole original rammer, and I was like, let's see if what Spinoza's doing. And then I, I literally Googled Marvin's Dam, and I found his website. And we contacted him, and they talked for the first time in decades. Yeah. And uh, obviously, uh, unfortunately, you know, Hugh McCracken has passed on, and Linda has passed on. So aside from Paul, every living member, every living musician on the record on Ram is on this record. So it was really cool too to get stories from Marvin and from Dave, um, yeah, as well because they were there. 
and you know Marvin uh, wasn't credited on the original record, but so he, he said wasn't, was, he wasn't. Yeah, he said only the rhythm section players. Oh right, that's the true. Orchestra was just listed as orchestra. So he said he was the most famous unknown trumpet player in the world in 1971 <laughs> for his solo on Halsey, on, on Uncle Albert. So. And I met Marvin when I first got out of the Navy. I hadn't come into New York yet, and I heard about New Jersey. I lived in Pennsylvania with my parents. I was waiting. For my wife just came over from France, and uh, we weren't even married yet. And I heard about a jam session in New Jersey at a place called the Tally Ho in Valley Forge, New Jersey. And I went down there and Marvin Stamm was, they had three horns, Marvin Stamm, Arnie Lawrence, a great tenor player, uh, alto player, and Bill Watchus, the trombone player, playing with John Coates. Tony DiNicola was playing drums. And so I went down and I sat down and Marvin said to me, what are you waiting for? Get your butt into the city. You're gonna be in the studio recording. As soon as you do, and that's all I needed to hear. So, God bless Marvin Stam. So now we brought him back, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it was really cool. He actually didn't have a recording set up, and he would, I taught him how to record using his phone, and he recorded uh, his both solos on on Emma Halsey through his phone, and it was really cool. Because we, you know, I mean, that's another thing is that um, obviously COVID nineteen was a, a terrible thing for music uh, industry. But we all figured out ways to collaborate and uh, through Zoom or through emailing. And we have over 100 musicians on this album from all over the world. And it was all through email. I mean, um, very few people actually came into my studio to record. It was mostly. And then that also was a technical disaster because there's a lot of different qualities of sound. But we were able to make it work. And we had an incredible Grammy award-winning mixing engineer named Zach Ziskin who helped a lot to create because he's a, also a, a lifelong Ram fan. So when you have that sound in your head, it's pretty easy to be able to, to get the sound to where it needed to be to do justice to the album. Yeah. Um, and what was it like meeting Paul for you, Denny? Being what? Like meeting Paul McCartney for the first time. <laughs> well, you know, I, I it really... I went down to this building. To, I didn't know it was an audition for Paul. I just thought that I was going to do a demo in some studio I'd never been in. And I walked downstairs, and he's sitting in the corner with his wife. And I looked at him, and I said, hey, you're Paul McCartney. He says, yeah, I know I'm Paul McCartney. I said, what the hell are you? So anyway, we had. Uh, I was used to meeting high-profile uh, music people because I was making a lot of records with them. Now, this one set me back a little bit, but you know I didn't let it let him see that. <laughs> so, so he asked me. He said, uh, "Well, I'm here in town. I'm going to make a record, and I'm looking at some drummers. Would you mind playing for me?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, I don't mind playing for you." He said, "You got a guitar or something?" He said, "No, just you." And there was a really terrible set of drums from from SIR in this ground floor floor basement. And I said, "Yeah, what the hell." What do you got to lose? If you can't get it on by yourself, how can you get it on by with somebody else? And I think he liked that. Life lessons. <laughs> I think he liked that. And so I sat down, and the first thing I did was I went to uh, What Would Ringo Do? So I went right to the tom-toms, and I started slamming away. And we had some fun. He had me play some shuffles, some rock and roll, some, some ballads, you know, just fool around. 
And I did it with a good attitude, and I believe that's what, what got me the gig. Yeah. The fact that I could play and still had a good attitude, that's what got me That's the, gig. the good thing. Yeah. Very few people like do that. Two days later, you were in the studio recording a, another day. Yeah, a few days later, it's funny, I get a phone call. He says, uh, oh, Danny, this is Paul. I went, Paul who? <laughs> he said, Paul, the guy you auditioned for, yeah. Yeah, right. You know, I thought it was somebody at my answering service or somebody just having fun with me. And he says, no, no, it's Paul McCartney. And uh, I'd like to hire you to do this this album project with me. And I said, really? OK, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, let me give, give me a second. Let me look at my book. Let me see if I'm clear. And I just jumped, you know, put the phone down and jumped up in the air. <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm in. I can do it. But what I didn't know about is that Paul hired three drummers. Yeah. Uh, and Denny was the was the first week. He was only supposed to do the first week of recording. Yep. And what happened? Well, <laughs> you you can figure it out. But he hired Herb Lavelle, who was a beautiful black drummer, did a lot of the Motown or the R and B, the soul soul dates in in town. What a great drummer, an older gentleman too. Herb Lavelle and the first and the other guy was Donald McDonald, who was a a very popular studio drummer. He had some problems with. Uh, out, you know, drugs and stuff like that. But some, you didn't know if he was going to show up. But what? A, and a beautiful player, and uh, he was going to start a week with me, a week with Donald, and then a week with Herb. And after the first week of recording with me, he just let those guys go, and he said, "I, I like the way I like your style, and I think uh, I want to keep you and do the whole record with you." So I was thrilled. So I, I kind of want to move into Wildlife, which is an album that I absolutely adore and it is in my top five McCartney albums. I know it's usually like people's least oh, top five? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's brilliant. Um, and did, this is a question from my friend Tom Hanyadi. Um, did you play drums on, I meant trumpet on Some People Never Know? You can I did. Hear awesome. I did. And Sea Moon and probably something else too. <laughs> play trumpet. In fact, I texted Paul the other day. I, I, you'll get a kick out of this. <laughs> I asked him. I said, uh, "Hey, I for, I forget. Was it was it uh, you or I that played the uh, the marimba part on Sea Moon?" And he got back. He says, "I'm not sure. The trumpet wiped all else from my mind." <laughs> <laughs> When he gets to Paul McCartney, it's not promotion. <laughs> but yeah, that's that that record is also very special to me, and and uh, I love the underdog records. And, yeah, you know that's a record that also was critically slammed, and I think has some of the most amazing music ever made. Dear friend. Yeah. Uh, Dear tomorrow. friend. Tomorrow. <laughs> Dear friend is is one of my favorite McCartney tunes ever. I mean, I have a jazz, I have a jazz trio, and uh, back in 2012, we did a, a, a record called Reckless Abandon, and we did five McCartney songs in a jazz genre, and we did the ballad Dear Friend in this very room, and oh, wow. uh, we didn't rehearse it. The guys wrote out the chords, and we, we, we ran it down one time, and the engineer recorded it as a, as a slow, moody ballad. And we all turned around and looked at each other and said, what was that? It, the magic was from beginning to end, 
And today I get I get emotional when I think about it. And uh, we listened back. We said, not touching that. That's going on the record just the way it was. So, yeah. I mean, and five of the eight songs on Wildlife were first takes. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yes. Paul wanted to give the world a, a, a really honest new look at a, at, a, at a new band. And we were starting from scratch. And it worked, I think. It was not even Henry yet. It was just Denny, Paul, Linda, and me. Yeah. Double Denny, double McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> it was called Big Denny and Little Denny. <laughs> <laughs> what one was Big Denny? You? Well, I'm 6'3". Oh, yeah. Lane's British. <laughs> my my, uh, my studio is in a double in a double garage and it has a very low roof and he has to like lean down. <laughs> He's six foot four, right? No, six. I used to be six three. I'm probably six two now. You get old, you, you shrink a little. He's the tall guy. But uh, yeah, so I I didn't realize how tall he was till I met him. I was like, whoa. Yeah, it was fun playing soccer with the guys with the band. We'd go out on these. We were filming over at Elstree, and so they had us in a field and in a boat and all of this crap. And so we all had white clothing on, and they wanted to just play soccer in between the shots that they were t taking of the band. And, and so we're, we're playing soccer. And I don't know how to play soccer, but I know how to play football, American football. So I sent Paul flying, man. Oh, no. <laughs> I hit him so hard, I hit him body block. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun like that, though. Um. And I want to talk about mumbo, which is so wild and fun. Was that like just a section of a jam or was that it like was a jam? <laughs> we started jamming, you know, I love to do that. You know, we were in the studio, probably getting a, probably getting, letting the engineer get good sounds and stuff. So, we're, Tony. Yeah, so we're just yeah. like slamming away. <laughs> we're, we're slamming away. He wanted a rocker. So he was trying to write a rocker on the spot, which, which is great when it happens. But as he, and it's funny because we got it roaring where it sounded good and felt good. We looked up, the red light wasn't on. So just as Paul said, take it, Tony, is when he turned the machine on. So you get the, you know, and then you hear the take it, Tony. So it was, it was absolutely perfect. Oh, wow. Wow. And yeah. then, I mean, it's like one of the most storming rockers in his entire career. Yeah. And like, was he like pretty like her after having three critically failed albums? Like, did that affect his um, attitude at all? He knew oh, what he wow. was worth. You knew what he was worth. That didn't affect him at all. Critics have to write bad stuff. If they write all good stuff, they don't have a job. Correct. Critics uh, are the biggest joke in the world. In fact, we were in uh, on the European tour. I shouldn't tell you this, but you seem like a nice guy, so. Uh, we're on the European tour, and we had just been busted for marijuana in Sweden. And so a little bit after that, this writer from the from some British paper, his name was Paul Dacker. That I remember. It should have been Dagger. But he, he showed up, and he said, I want to do a feature piece on you guys as a family unit. I'm not reviewing a concert. I'm just making a piece on you. I'm not going to talk about the drug bust or anything. Just the way you live as a family. So... Paul granted him an interview and he hung out with us and everything. He came to a sound check and that was the last we saw of him. Two days later, the article comes out and it's a complete, complete review of the concert that he wasn't at. Oh. And it was a horrible review. So Linda had 
little Mary and Stella were, were, were tiny at the time. And they had, uh, uh, they took one of these little Queen Elizabeth plastic soap dishes from the fancy hotels we were staying in. And they put one of the kids turds in it and look at this guy. <laughs> That's what they thought of, of it, reviewers, you know, yeah. critics. There is a book coming soon. <laughs> I got a million of them. Oh my, oh yeah. He, he, one of the coolest things about working with Denny is getting to hear all these stories. <laughs> and he's full of the, of, of amazing stories that make you go, <laughs> I mean, it, it's incredible. Tell tell them about the drum kit you used on Ram. Oh, that was cool. That was cool. Hold uh, on to your head; it's about to explode. You know, I do the audition. He hires me for the gig. Meantime, my fr friend from uh, Pro Drum calls me up. And he says, "Hey, Danny, the musicians, uh, the the Museum of Famous People in New York is going out of business, and they have an auction with the Ringo Starr drum kit from Shea Stadium concert." I went, wow. He said, I'm going to go to the auction. Do, would you like the kit? Because I don't want the kit, but I want the snare drum. I went, yeah, but I'm not a million. I can't afford that. you know. So he, he goes to the auction. He calls me back a couple days later. He says, I got the kit. I went, no kidding, man. That's beautiful. He says, you still want the two? The, I got the two Tom Toms and the bass drum. He said, uh, I, you can have the two Tom Toms and the bass drum. I'm keeping the snare drum. I said, well, yeah, how much? And he goes, Give me 300 bucks, it's yours. I went, oh my God, I deal. So I went and picked them up. And the first day in the studio at CBS 52nd Street, Paul comes in, hey man, how you doing? You ready to go? I said, yeah. He said, those are, he double taped them. And he saw I had the Beatles head still on the kit in the drum booth. And uh, he said, that's your drum kit? You got the Beatles drum kit? I said, yeah. And uh, I used my father's snare drum, and that was on the whole album. So that oh, was, wow. uh, and then years later, Ringo spoiled it. He's a buddy of mine. I see him all the time here in LA. And he said, nah, that wasn't really the, the original kit. I had the original kit. I beg to differ with him. <laughs> I think it was. Anyway. And I didn't realize that until I saw a picture of Denny uh, from the Ram Sessions, and I saw that black oyster, and I was like, Ringo, he's right. And there was, I think there were seven original kits, and I'm pretty sure it was one of them. As a matter of fact, I gave the drums back to Frank because they weren't really right for what I was doing at the time. It was great to use them on that album, but I was really a Gretsch nut. I loved the sound of the Gretsch drums, and I just signed a deal with Gretsch, and they made me some beautiful set. But I kept that Beatles head, and that... Beatles head two years ago or so when Ringo sold that kit that I used to play up at farm at Paul's farm in Scotland he sold that kit for 2.1 million dollars Wow and the 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 guy that bought it also bought a separate head for two million dollars and I had one of those seven originals I kept it at my mom's up in PA I kept it at my uncle Bunny's place in New York City a cartage place I don't know where the hell it was when I finally started looking around for it many years ago. It wasn't there, and I, I broke my heart, but I didn't know the value then. And now when I think about it, I just cry. <laughs> yeah. Danny, you're a millionaire in other ways. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, the money helped, though. <laughs> all right, that's all good, though. But I mean, like, the drumming on Mumbo, like, 
I'm going to guess, like, how long did that GM go on for? Was that just for the track or was that um, like? No, no, we were, we were in there just, you know, how you get something going for the engineer to, to just be able to get sounds on everybody before you start recording. So it was kind of like a sound check for the engineer. And we were just, you know, having fun. And uh, all of a sudden it's getting real good. And he looks up and he says, take it, Tony. It's not going to get any better. <laughs> And so that that was a lot of and, uh, one of the other tracks from that session though was Mickey uh, Love is Strange the the reggae tune that we did which was a cover track if I recall right pardon yes that was a Ian and, Sylvia. Ian and Sylvia's Love is Strange yeah I keep thinking Mickey it's Ian and Sylvia and uh, yeah they were both of Paul and Linda came back from uh, Christmas around the Ram period they came up to my apartment in New York our apartment and they they were on fire they just heard reggae music for the first time and they brought all these records with them and we were listening to these reggae records and paul and linda were just nuts over it so we're doing uh we're doing ram uh, we're doing uh, wildlife and what can we do with this they really wanted to cover love is strange so we're thinking about a different way of approaching it and i said reggae paul <laughs> turned around and lit up like a Christmas tree. And, and I started playing a reggae beat. He started playing, and that was it, man. We put it together, and uh, it was no slight departure from traditional reggae, but we were the first white pop group to do a reggae tune. Correct. That's awesome. Yeah. And then, and then yeah, Seaside Woman was another thing, another reggae thing. And Seymour. Linda's, Linda's song was Seaside Woman. Uh, sea Moon, Paul wrote. I, you know, here's an interesting fact too. When we were doing uh, Sea Moon, do 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 do. You know, so I, I'm I'm uh, we're fooling around in the studio. We're over at Barnes at the uh, Glenn Johns's uh, engineering, and he's producing with us. And we're at the uh, Olympia. No, what's the name of that studio? Olympic. Olympic. Yeah, we're at the Olympic studio. And we're just screwing around with this song, you know. And so I wasn't playing the drums. Uh, I, Paul was playing, I forget. Henry started playing my drum set. And Paul starts playing this song, Sea Moon. So I pick up the bass. And I don't know, I don't know how to play a bass at all. According to that photo. Oh, <laughs> but I start, doom, doom, doom. I couldn't play for it. You know, making all the strings buzz and all that stuff. So he replaced it. But, I'm playing bass, he's playing whatever he played, and Henry played drums. <laughs> Henry played about one-tenth as much as I would play, and that's what made it so beautiful, it was so sparse. And uh, he just replaced my my ugly bass part, and that was the record, man, and I, I loved it. It's I Paul's loved favorite it. sound check song, too. It seems yeah. like he plays it every sound check. Yeah. It's a very special song. And then I put the I put the marimbas on, and I said, oh, by the way, you know, I can play trumpet. And I just a week before, I was down to Portobello Road to the antique places, and I bought a pocket trumpet, a little cornet about yay big, and it had a little leather bag and everything. And I had it, I sent it into the uh, to the uh, Shaftesbury Avenue where they have all the music stores. And some guy redid the whole thing, re-silver and everything. It was like a brand new horn. And I just, <laughs> so he, it blew his mind when I started playing the trumpet, you know. <laughs> wow. It's, it's, it's incredible the amount of freedom that 
wings had in the studio. There was no rules. And, uh, you know, that, when you guys put aside your egos and say, oh, Henry, it's okay you play your drum. Well, drums yeah. on my trumpet, you know. Yeah. Well, usually, I mean, I have a picture. I'll get it down for you, but I have a picture. If, whenever I got up from the drum kit, Paul sat down and started playing. Wow. He just he just loved it. The look of the look of uh, of uh, worry. There's, on there's your a faces. rarity. There's the look a of rarity. worry on your face is. I hope he doesn't break the bass drum head. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Look, look, look. There you go. There, there you go. go. There you go. The darn Venetian blinds are screwing it up, but it's wow. great. That's it. I saw that photo. I'm like, that's cute. <laughs> but yeah, awesome. I mean, that's 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 incredible. The all the different stories of just all the amazingly amazing improvisation moments that happen. Yeah, just just some bands are very calculated. Yeah, and there's also no no producer that was there going do this do that. You guys were very free in the studio, which is great. I'll never forget Wildlife. I mean, we were in the studio up at the Abbey Road Two, and we were upstairs in the booth with Paul. And this is before Flying Faders and automation, so everybody had their assignment when we came to mix, and you'd have your group of faders to move up and down, and it was like a damn performance. If everybody made their assignments on the mix, it was a good mix. If not, you stayed till five in the morning or, or later, whenever we got the whole thing done. It was truly a band concept. And Paul wanted all of us to be known like George, John, Paul, and Ringo. Exactly. And I agree with that. The public to know each and every one of us and everything about us. So we spent a lot of time in the press office and doing interviews. Yeah, it was quite quite a a memorable time in my life. Yeah, and like um, people consider like Wings was just Paul. That that's so wrong. We Wings, worked in Paul's band. Right. I mean, I can as a discography, I think of it as Paul McCartney's discography, but Wings was not just Paul. Yeah. All my favorite record stores have a wings section and a Paul McCartney section. <laughs> Yesterday and today, records in Miami have a wings section and a Paul McCartney section, and that's how I knew they were legit. <laughs> Do you play an instrument, Hudson? Um, no, I play a little bit of guitar, but I'm not very good. <laughs> so, it's all matters. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of want to discuss the sessions for Red Rose Speedway. And we'll talk about the bonus cuts on the um, Red Rose Speedway Reconstructed album. Um, what were those sessions like? Because, I mean, this was like a kind of like a bigger turnaround for the critics to say, like with it being a double album, what originally being a double album. like Right, right, yeah. Well, we recorded that at several different studios. We were at Olympic and Barnes. Uh, with Glenn Johns on some of the tracks. It just didn't work out. Paul was, he was a better producer for himself than any uh, anybody else could have been. He tried using Jim Garcio to finish up the Ram album for a couple of tracks, and that didn't work out either. But Paul was such a great producer for his own material that it was just hard for anybody to work with us. And uh, so anyway, we, we, we had a bunch of time at uh, Olympic Studios. We did some stuff at Abbey Road. We also did uh, the old Trident in London, 
we, we did some stuff in, in Trident Studios as well, and we wrapped up some tracks that were on the ramp, uh, that were released. It was recorded for ramp, but never released, like Little Lamb Dragonfly, uh, Get on the Right Thing. So we, we had some other stuff to finish up there, and it was, we were really on it. We'd kind of become a band. Henry was part of the thing, and we were just, we were going to work every day and coming up with beautiful stuff, and, uh, then EMI decided, well, listen, we're not going to make this a double album. We, we think it might be a mistake so early on in the career to, to release a double album. So we, we prefer just take the best, you know. So that was the hard part. We had to sit down and pick the songs that would fit on a record, too, you know, because it was a uh, came out vinyl. So we had to, we had to, pick through all of these songs that we recorded and try to come up with a with a, a, a serious sequence that would work for a single album and show where the band was at in its time period. As now, well. as, as a whole, are you a single, the Red Rose double or Red Rose single? Like, what do you like better? Oh, I, I, think, they, I think they made the right call. Uh, it's just sad that uh, more of that stuff couldn't be you know, there, it's, it was hard. It was really hard to pick the tunes that were going to go on the single album and what we're going to stick back on the shelf to be uh, sorted out and, and released later on as B-sides or whatever. It was That was hard to do. But that was a band effort, too. Right. And you... We didn't sit down and vote on it, but it was almost <laughs> to that degree, you know. Red Rose was a rare, a rare album that I first discovered on CD, and it had bonus tracks, and... My favorite song on that was I Lie Around. That, that was like... That's, that's one of my favorites, too. Well, that was recording during Ram, and the, the, and that was Marvin was on that. Really? Oh, yeah. It was the, that was the sweetening dates up at Phil Ramone's A&R Studios. Wow. Yeah, George Martin did the arrangements. So who sings all over the place? That's Paul. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I always thought that was somebody else. I was no, just... That's Paul. He loves that shit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's a great track. That's right. That has that big horn section. And, and all that nice. weird stuff that was like Loop, the first Indian on the moon. Oh, I love that song. Oh, that's a great song. <laughs> when people ask me, like, you know, like, what's the proggiest moments of non-prog artists, I usually say Loop, the first Indian on the moon. It's the most Pink Floydish McCartney ever went, I think. It, it does. It sounds like, like avant-garde um, prog music, either Pink Floyd, Focus, uh, well, Paul, Paul was thinking that move, that loop was kind of kind of be like a jazz piece, <laughs> really. So when I had my jazz trio record, Reckless Abandon, go back and find this. It's on Apple and all that stuff. We did a version of loop in a jazz waltz that's brilliant. Paul heard it, and I, I'm sure that it it rocked him down to his socks, man. He loved it. He loved all these different takes we did. We did coming up and. And uh, dear friend, and uh, bit bop, and uh, yeah, but loop the first Indy on the moon that was that was kind of really weird. And then there was another track on there that wasn't released. Jazz Street, Jazz Street's killer. Uh, Night out, Night out. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the opening on the double LP. Yeah, yeah. even I though Big Barn Bed is I still got the, I still got the acetates from that for me and mine. Oh wow. Big Barn Bed is the only way to open Red Rose Speedway in my eyes. 
Well, it opened up James Paul McCartney really well too. The the the, the PBS special. Yeah. With a uh, hundred TVs. Yes, yes, hundred TVs as the audience. Uh, one of the one of the only other drummers that's on the uh, Ram on record, Matt Techie, said that watching James Paul McCartney made him want to be a drummer. That was the moment that he said, "I want a drum kit." So he <laughs> played some percussion on uh, "Heart of the Country," and it was just like, "Yeah, it's such a cool thing." It does. You do look like a badass there, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a very expensive nudie shirt on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you were very American. You were definitely you. You. Yeah. You. Uh, in the, in the description of each each member, it says uh, Denny Sawo, uh, about as American as kidney pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I actually learned about stone. I didn't understand the question about about weight and stones. I guess that's all oh, right. Yeah, about yeah. the British. Right. It's about pounds over here, you know. I, I got lots. That's all. So um, another question I wanted to ask you. What was it like on the McGear album, which is an album that I've come to really like? Because I know you played drums on one track, I believe. Yeah, I don't remember much about that. He, he came into the studio, and we were recording, and, and I think the band was just there, and we, I don't know, is it just one track on there? Yeah, it was. I think it was. Um, it was probably just something that we did where, where Paul took his voice over off it and let uh, probably something that was meant for wings that that Mike he gave it to Mike and Mike just put Mike's a great guy I, I stay in touch with him he's he's a, he's a cool guy very much an artist and uh, yeah I like Michael very much wow but and so Beetle Fest so before this thing called the coronavirus came afloat what what did you go to like all the Beatle fests and stuff? No, when no, you could? no. They would get tired of me. So <laughs> <laughs> every couple of years, uh, Mark Lapidus would invite me to come, and I would, the only way I would come to be a guest is is if I got to do my Ram clinic. I would uh, he would give me rant me forty five whole minutes to I would play along to the CD of Ram in the main auditorium, and it was a highlight for many of the Beatle fans there. Uh, I would because you don't get to hear Ram. People no, don't, don't perform that music that much, and uh, so hearing me play along with the tracks and tell a few stories about what it was like, and th that was always a highlight of the festival. And I believe some of that footage is always available through uh, Beetle Fests. Yeah, so I'm going to go through, and if you are still the viewers, if you are still kind of looking and see some questions. Um, we're going to, and want to type in a question, I'm going to go through all of them and we'll ask you that to them and I'll flash them on the screen. What you got? So for, um, from Michael Mativier, friend of mine, um, do you have a t favorite time signature that you love to play? Um, well, seven and nine. No, no, I no four more four. I like four straight ahead. Boom. There's no reason to add it up unless you're trying to screw up the dancers. <laughs> unless it's a wall. No, I love I love odd times. So I mean, uh, obviously, and in, in when I'm doing a lot of film work, we're do, recording the big scores for the blockbuster movies. It's a bop bop at the bop bop five eight, and then it'll go into three eight. 
you know, so I have to be versed in all of that stuff. And if you listen to the film Waterworld, for example, I'm in the drum section there, the percussion section, there's eight of us. And there's, I don't think there's any section of that score that's in 4-4. It's all odd times. So it's fun. I like odd times. So thanks for that question. And then another one from Michael. Um, are there any contemporary drummers that you find exciting for their style? Oh, there's tons of them. There's tons of them. I mean, I, I, I would hate to start mentioning them because I'll forget somebody. But, uh, you know, there, there's tons of great, great drummers. Uh, um, the jazz world's got a bunch of up-and-comers. Uh, the rock world's got plenty. I, I couldn't mention one without... You know, some of my favorites are good. I still love guys like Purdy and uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, geez. Now I'm going to forget it. The producer. Uh, oh, shit. He played with uh, the tall guitar player. I'm going to look like an old man now. Uh, I just took a picture with him the other night. He was in town. He, anyway, I have so many. I, I, can't, I can't mention one drummer without mentioning 100. <laughs> and we're we're a, we're a society of our own, you know, and we're very closely knit, and uh, you know, we 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 stay close. I mean, I'm always on the phone with Keltner, and I see Ringo three times a week sometimes, and you know, Greg Bissonette, I bump into him all of the time. We all miss Joe Picaro, and uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a family, and there are several times a year drummers get together here in L.A. and. Uh, She's uh, in this little room here. I mean, I have guys that come over once a month till the COVID hit. We, we'd have a drum hang. Uh, oh Jim wow! Barbara is great jazz drummer. Leatherbarrow, and you know, there's we 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 sit down and we play. I have two sets of drums and we, we just play. And we jam. talking about Steve Jordan? Huh? Steve, Steve Jordan. Jordan. Thank you. Yeah. Tall guy would be drum mayor. Yeah, I could speak. I could speak so well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, am I just Jordan. realized I'm like tall guy. I produced Steve Jordan. I was in, I was at a Christmas party in 1971 or something at David Lucas's studio in New York, and, and there was all of the cats were there, were having wine and celebrating Christmas and all. I was back from my gig with McCartney, and a, a bass player and a drummer started playing in front of all of the heavyweight cats in New York, and everybody stopped and kind of slowly turned around and. Who the hell is this? And that was Neil Jason and wow. Steve Jordan. And it was amazing. Very memorable. And then, yeah, let's go. We're running out of time here. Keep so. on going. Yeah. Um, Let her rip. What, was it like being on the university tour? All right. I, that, that was insane. Uh, I get up to the house. Paul says, we're going on tour. Just come on up to the house. I went, what? <laughs> so I go up to the house. He says, where's Monique? And I said, what do you mean? She's coming. She, what? So Paul calls my wife up. He says, get your ass up here. We're leaving as soon as you get here. So she had to pack a bag, get somebody to watch the cat, get a cab, get up to the house. And we threw everything in, in a, a truck and a van. Paul was driving the van, and we drove up north without a place to play, without a hotel reservation. We said, let's go to a university. So we went to Nottingham University first. And we asked, do you got a place where we can put on a concert tonight? He said, well, I don't know. The kids are in spinals right now. And they said, well, we got Paul McCartney out there in the van. So the, the kid from the student union comes out and Paul waves at him. Hi. <laughs> they said, yeah, you can play here tonight. So we did 
10 or 11 shows like that. We stayed ahead of the press. They didn't know where we were going to turn up. We showed up. We set up while the guys were setting up the gear. We had very little gear. We played in lunchrooms sometimes. While the guys were setting up the gear, Paul, we would get in the van and we'd go find a hotel that would take dogs and stuff, <laughs> kids. And we had dogs, kids, and, and the band. And uh, it was it was brilliant. At the end of the night, we'd take the kid with the box of money and we'd go, one for you, one for you, one for you, one for you. And on to the next one. Go back to the hotel, just sing songs all night till we fell asleep, get up in the morning and go find another place to do it. We did it 10 times or 11 times. And um, I've written a story about it that has never seen the light of day, so I'm hoping to get that published. It's it's really a, a wonderful, and Paul's seen it. He loves it, so I'm looking for somebody to publish this damn thing. So, Denny, I want to thank you for coming on. I know, I know. I really appreciate it, and thank you, Fernando. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for keeping the music alive and... Uh... <laughs> And, and you know your generation is uh, is in charge of keeping this music going for the rest of the world of the history of the world so very cool yes thank you all right i'm gonna end the stream